Welcome to the teaching ministry at Calvary PSL. Please join lead pastor Mike Wiggins for the message, Amazing Grace. All right, so when we finished Acts chapter 21 three weeks ago, uh, we stopped right in the middle of a very dramatic scene. And so if you were here and you remember, Paul's enemies spotted him in the temple. And you got to go there in your mind. You got to imagine this. Make the Bible come alive in your own mind and heart. He's there. Paul's there in the temple. There's thousands of people everywhere. His enemies spot him and they start to shout, men of Israel, help. That's the man who's been teaching everyone everywhere against the Jews against the law of Moses, and against the temple. And worst of all, he's defiled this holy place because he brought Gentiles past the barrier into the inner courts. And so that's what's happening. They're yelling, they're screaming. All of it, false accusations. But nonetheless, everybody freaked out. If you remember three weeks ago, they seized Paul, they dragged him out of the inner courts, and they began to literally beat him, physically beat the Apostle Paul, which by the way, was nothing new for the Apostle Paul, all right? So let me put again the model of the temple up on the screen for you. Uh, this is right outside of the um, Israel Museum. If you go with us to Jerusalem and uh, I think it's 13 months from now. Uh, well, this is one of the many places that we go to. And um, there's about a 45-minute lecture going around. It's much bigger than what you see on the screen. But nonetheless, there is the Jewish temple as it looked in Jesus' day. Herod the Great gave it a great facelift. And um, if you're looking and you see the two large courts on either side of the temple, please say amen. Okay, so that's the court of the Gentiles. Now, it's hard to see, but there is a line on either side of the inner courts. Those lines are actually a four and a half foot wall, which is the barrier. The barrier um, past which the Gentiles were not allowed to go. In fact, there was warning signs all along those walls, warning the Gentiles, if you go into the inner courts, you will be killed. And so you remember three weeks ago, I put up on the screen a picture of the actual limestone, 2,000 years old, on display in the Israel Museum, the actual sign that Jesus and Paul and the rest of the apostles looked at in, uh, in the temple. It's there. We have it right now. And uh, it's on display in the Israel Museum, warning the Gentiles not to go past that barrier. All right. Now. Top right part of your screen, northwest section of the temple courts, was the Antonia Fortress, named after Mark Antony, who was the good friend of Herod the Great. And that's where the Roman soldiers were stationed. And so the Roman sol soldiers were stationed in that fort to keep order in Jerusalem. They're patrolling. They look down. And you got to imagine thousands of people all over the, the court of the Gentiles. They look down and they see that a riot, a riot is beginning to happen down below. And so they inform their Roman tribune. We're going to find out in chapter 23. His name is Claudius Lysias. And this guy springs into action. He orders at least 200 Roman soldiers down onto the court of the Gentiles, and they literally have to physically rescue the Apostle Paul from being beat to death. And so Claudius then uh, arrests Paul, he binds him with two chains, and he asks the crowd, who is this guy and what has he done? 
And if you remember, everybody starts shouting different things. He can't make sense of any of it, and so he orders that Paul be brought back to the barracks. And so again, picture it in your mind. The Roman soldiers are leading Paul through this angry crowd to the Antonia Fortress, and they get to the steps, which you can't see on the picture, but nonetheless, they get to the steps leading up to the barracks, and that's when the scene became very violent. So violent, remember this? The Roman soldiers had to use their bodies as a human shield to protect Paul from the angry crowd. And they literally had to lift him up and carry him up the stairs to the barracks. Does anybody remember what the mob was yelling at the apostle Paul as he was being carried away? It's in the end of verse 36 of chapter 21. They were shouting, away with him, away with him. The same thing they shouted at Jesus before they crucified him about 20, well, a little over 20 years prior to this time of where we are in the Bible. Now, you would think after being beaten by these people, that Paul would have rushed into the barracks to take cover. You would have thought, you know, that some people would think that, you know, why didn't he turn around and give them an obscene gesture or whatever after they tried to beat him to death? But that's not Paul. Paul asked the Roman tribune, Claudius Lysias, permission to speak to the crowd. And he was given permission. And so picture the, mind, the scene in your mind. There's Paul, he's beaten and bruised, right? And he stands at the top of the steps. The angry crowd is below. He raises his hand. They're all screaming and shouting. He raises his hand until there's complete silence. And then he addresses them. And so today we're picking it up in chapter 22, verse 1. So if you're looking at a Bible right now, either the one you brought from home, the one you grabbed in the back, or electronically, and you're looking right now at Acts 22, verse 1, would you say amen? I really hope you'll humble your hearts. I really hope you'll put the guard down. And I really hope that you'll allow the Holy Spirit to speak to you. Because here's what you need to know, friend. God loves you. He's got an amazing plan for your life. He wants to speak to you today. But you got to engage. You got to open your ears. He says, Paul says to the angry crowd in chapter 22, verse 1, Brothers and fathers... Hear the, what's the word? Defense. Everybody say defense. defense. Defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, which most likely most scholars believe was the language the Hebrews were speaking at that time, which was Aramaic, they became even more quiet. He said, brothers and fathers, Hear the defense. Now, the word defense in the, um, in the Greek is apologia, from where we get our English word apologetics, all right? So what is Christian apologetics? Well, Christian apologetics simply is a reasoned defense for the historic Christian faith, which, by the way, is a very, very important field of study, and we thank God for the apologists who are um, involved in that study in our generation. But it's not just for them to get involved in. Did you guys know that, pardon the bad English, but all y'all <laughs> are responsible to know how to make a defense for the historic Christian faith? 
Isn't that what Peter said in 1 Peter 3.15? Check it out. Peter writing to the Jewish pilgrims in the diaspora who had believed in Jesus as their Messiah. He said, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Look at this. Always being prepared. Again, that's, that's everybody. That's everybody in this room. That's everybody watching on Facebook right now. Everybody listening to the podcast. That's all Christians for the last 2,000 years. Here is what the Apostle Peter, under the authority of the Holy Spirit, tells you. He says, always being prepared to make a what? Defense. Apologia. To anyone who asks you for the reason, for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. So I want to encourage everybody here to learn how to make a defense for your faith. And I would start, if I were you, just a suggestion, with three, these three topics, all right? So when we're diving into apologetics, how to make a defense for the faith, I would start personally with the inspiration and inerrancy of the scriptures. Ladies and gentlemen, it breaks my heart, but did you know that with every new generation, there comes new attacks against this book? And you know what really breaks my heart? That it's not just coming from atheistic people. It's actually coming from quote-unquote Christians. And now in our generation, quote-unquote evangelicals are now attacking this doctrine of the inerrancy and the inspiration of the scriptures. There are pastors like me right now in pulpits in America that are telling their people that uh, it's not really God's word. Do you know how to defend against that nonsense? I'd encourage you to figure it out and know how to make a defense for why you believe the Bible is God's word. The second thing I'd encourage you to do is to learn the Old Testament prophecies that were fulfilled in Jesus Christ. If you're brand new to the Bible, I know you know that there's an Old Testament in the left side and a New Testament in the right. Well, in the Old Testament, written hundreds of years before the New Testament, there are many prophecies about the coming Messiah. There's prophecies about his birth, there's prophecies about his life, there's prophecies about his suffering, there's prophecies about his death, there's prophecies about his resurrection in the Old Testament. If I go any farther, I'm gonna fall off. But there's even a prophecy about his ascension into heaven. And did you know all those Old Testament prophecies are fulfilled in one man in history and one man only? His name is Jesus of Nazareth. Which, by the way, tells me that point number one is true. Because if the Bible can predict with 100% accuracy in details, details about a man who would leave, live hundreds of years after, that means this is a supernatural book. So learn how to defend your faith. The third thing I would suggest is you learn how to give proofs for the resurrection of Christ. The central doctrine, which we're, by the way, going to celebrate here uh, whenever Rachel said it during the video announcements, um, that's going to come up in five services. Uh, we're going to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the central doctrine of the Christian faith. Everything rises and falls on that doctrine. Do you know how to defend it? Can you prove that Jesus is alive right now? You should be able to. In fact, we should always be ready to make a defense. 
And so know why you believe the Bible is God's word, know the Old Testament prophecies that have been fulfilled in Jesus and know how to prove that he's alive. When you study those three topics, what you're gonna find is your strengths, your, your faith's gonna get stronger and stronger. Now let me, before we go, go on, let me just give you two quick websites that are gonna help you in your study. And so one of them I've been, I'm endorsing these guys for years. It's gotquestions.org. They are now up to answering over 600,000 questions about the Bible and the Christian faith, which is kind of crazy, uh, but nonetheless, really good and solid resource, gotquestions.org. Here's a new one for you, alwaysbeready.com. Alwaysbeready.com. And so that's a website by author and apologist, Charlie Campbell. Uh, Charlie was a uh, former Calvary Chapel Bible College instructor. He wrote some books. Uh, he pastored a church, and he became uh, um, really, really um, interested in apologetics. And so now he is a full-time apologist. Charlie Campbell, alwaysbeready.com, another solid resource to help you in this area of apologetics. Now, let's regroup. As important as it is for you and I to know how to defend our faith, Here's something else you need to know. That one of the most powerful ways that you and I can defend our faith, listen to this, is by telling your personal testimony. Your story. Your story of how Jesus Christ changed you. Listen, never underestimate the power of your story. As the Holy Spirit uses you in conversation to share how Christ changed you. Listen, it can change people's lives. The Lord does it through you. But, but man, you got a story. And you need to share your story. You need to share your personal testimony. This is the method of apologetics that Paul used as he stood before these people in Acts 22. Again, he says in verse 1, brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I make before you. And what's he going to do now? He's going to tell his story of how he came to the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's a powerful story. It began, um, and if you're taking notes, uh, here's where you can engage with the message by using your note card here. Here's your first fill in the blank. Paul's testimony, part one, was all about his life before Christ. His life in his BC, so to speak, days. And how, how would you... Um, uh, characterize that life? Well, like you and I, he was a sinner, a sinner. And we're gonna see that now uh, in verses three through five, okay? So look at verse three. Everybody look at your Bibles, stay with it. Really wanna encourage you to discipline yourself to study the scriptures, all right? And so Paul, standing on the steps above this angry crowd, the first four words out of his mouth I am a Jew, <laughs> I am a Jew. Trying to lay some common ground between him and them. I am a Jew born in Tarsus and Cilicia, but brought up in this city, Jerusalem. Educated at the feet of Gamaliel. Everybody would be impressed by that because this guy is a rock star, famous rabbi in, in that time. So I was educated at the feet of Gamaliel according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers. Being zealous for God, look at this, as all of you are this day. <laughs> yeah, they just try to kill them. They're so full of zeal, but it's not really zeal from God. Verse four, I persecuted this way. And remember, the word way was the way they described Christianity 2,000 years ago. 
I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers and I journeyed to Damascus to take also those who were there, Christians, and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. And so Paul was a sinner. And before he got specifically to his sin, he tried to relate to these people. He tried to connect with the Jews by sharing his Jewish credentials. He says, I am a Jew. I was born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but I was brought up right here in the capital of the Jews, Jerusalem. I was mentored by the famous Rabbi Gamaliel. I was taught by him to strictly follow the law of Moses. And not only that, uh, that um, you need to know that Paul was not just a Jew. You need to know that Paul was an angry, legalistic, violent Jew. You see, Paul was so angry, he got mad at the Jews who were calling on Jesus as the Messiah. And he went and kicked down some doors and began to persecute followers of the way, followers of Jesus Christ. And so Paul could say to this angry crowd, hey, you guys think that you're zealous against the Christians? I persecuted them to the death. I threw many of them into prison. I killed many of them, all in the name of religious zeal. Go ask the high priest, he'll tell you. He gave me the letters to do this. And so Paul is admitting to this crowd that he was filled with religious zeal, but he's, he would find out on the road to Damascus, if you're with me, say amen here. He would find out that even though he was religious, he was lost. You guys understand this? You understand that you can be religious and you can be completely lost, take your last breath and wake up in hell. And so Paul admits, I was filled with religious zeal, but he's gonna find out because someone, capital S, is going to, on the road to Damascus, confront him with his sin in such a dramatic way, it would absolutely change his life forever, which leads us to part two of his testimony. If you're taking notes, here's your next fill-in. Paul's testimony, part one, he was a sinner. That was his life before Christ. But now part two, how did he meet Christ? Well, it was an encounter of grace. Grace. And we're gonna see that now in verses six through 11. Okay, so check it out. Verse six, Paul still addressing the angry crowd. He says, as I was on my way and drew near to Damascus about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul. By the way, it's his Hebrew name, Greek name Paul, Hebrew name Saul. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am, shout out his name, go ahead. Jesus. Jesus. Can you imagine Paul's freaking out as he's groveling in the dirt right now? He cannot, his whole world's being turned upside down right now. I am Jesus of Nazareth. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Well, apparently so, our Lord Jesus Christ. 
I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. And Paul says, now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, well, what shall I do, Lord? I like that. He's submitting to the authority of Jesus. And the Lord said to me, rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. Verse 11, and since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. And so please, please, please listen in. As Paul was going his own way, as Paul was doing his own thing, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, revealed himself to Paul. Please, please, please understand this. Paul did not go on a search for Jesus. Jesus went on a search for Paul. Please, please, please hear this. I'm paraphrasing C.S. Lewis. To say that you and I got up one day and decided I'm gonna go on a search for God is like saying a mouse goes on a search for a cat. It doesn't happen, ladies and gentlemen. You and I, we, we, we received a sin nature from Adam. His guilt was imputed to us. We received the sin nature through the natural generation of our parents. We were born in sin. And ladies and gentlemen, you and I were totally depraved, completely separated from God. People who are totally depraved dead in their sins and trespasses and completely separated from God, do not get up one day and decide to go on a search for Jesus Christ unless the grace of God is working in their life. And so the apostle Paul was confronted by the Lord Jesus for his sin. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus of Nazareth. Now, here's what blows my mind as I was studying this week. That even though Paul was persecuting Jesus, the Lord still loved him. The, the Lord still wanted to forgive him. The Lord still wanted to save him. What do you guys call that? Here's what I call it. Grace. Come on, stay with me here. Why in the world would the Lord Jesus Christ want to save a man who was persecuting him, who was fighting against him. Why? One word, grace. Why in the world would Jesus Christ want to save a man who was persecuting his people, who hated his people so much, he was imprisoning them, he was ruining their lives, he was breaking up families, he was killing some of these Jesus people. Why would Jesus ever want to save him? One word, grace. And why in the world would the Apostle Paul, after getting the snot beat out of him, bruised and beaten, want to stop on the top of those stairs and look over this angry crowd that wanted to kill him and share how they could be forgiven and how they could be forgiven? One word, grace. Why don't we all say it together on the count of three? One, two, three. Grace. It's a grace encounter. Thank you for the extra from that back row from somebody who's probably under 10 years old. You're getting it. That's a good thing. Listen, 
Paul received grace from the Lord, and now he wanted to give it to other people. Hey, don't you know that Paul saw himself in the faces of this angry crowd? He's looking at them throwing dirt in the air and tearing off their robes or cloaks or whatever and screaming and yelling, and he's like, that was me a little over 20 years ago. And so he received grace, and now he wants to share grace. Hey, that's a pretty good idea for us too, isn't it? How do you guys know you've been saved by the grace of God? Okay, so why are some people who've been saved and forgiven by grace standing on their self-righteous high horse, looking down their nose and doing this at people, judging them critically? Wait, hold on a minute. That person who hurt you that person who offended you, what you need to do is go back in your mind to the Apostle Paul who was hurt by this crowd and yet still showed grace. Do you see it? And so Paul knew the only thing that could save these people from their pride, their self-righteousness, their religiosity, their rage was the grace of Jesus Christ. And so if you're new to the Bible, what is grace? Well, it's on the bottom of your note card, if you want to fill in the blanks here, grace simply is the unmerited favor of God. And Paul wrote about it in his letter to the church at Ephesus. And so hold your place in Acts, take a right, and now turn, please, to the book of Ephesians. All right, and so if you're new to the Bible, you're in Acts. The next book is Romans. Then there's First and Second Corinthians. And then... There's God's electric power company, right? Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. If you get to Revelation, take a left, come back. Once you found Ephesians, chapter two, look up at me and smile really big. I think some of you are tired because of the time change. Maybe we should have the ushers bring coffee in and serve it row by row. No, we're not gonna do this. We are not a me church, okay? So forget it. Go get your own coffee after service, all right? All right, so if you found Ephesians chapter two, say amen. amen. Now let me set up verse four for you. Before we read verse four, I gotta set this up. Paul's writing about this unmerited favor of God. And in the beginning of Ephesians chapter two, he wants to write about our BC days. You guys remember what BC means, right? Before Christ. And it's a dark picture. And by the way, when you realize how dark the picture is, it makes the, the light of Christ all the more glorious. I'm, of course, working on this the degree in theology, and I've been studying Pelagius this week. And, you know, Pelagius was a heretic. Pelagius taught that we're all born perfectly as Adam, and we need to do good works to earn our way to heaven. That's a lie from the pit of hell, and it smells like smoke. It's not how we get saved. And Paul's going to tell you the truth right now. What he tells us in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, is that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We, in our BC days, were following the course of this corrupt world. We're being, we were being led by the prince of the power of the air. We didn't even know it but demons were leading us in our BC days. 
We were living in the sinful passions of our flesh and we were on the authority of God's word. In our BC days, we were by nature children of wrath. Pretty dark picture, right? It's absolutely true. Some of you say, well, pastor, wait a minute. I got saved when I was five years old in Sunday school. I wasn't living in the sinful passions of my flesh. Granted, okay? But at least two of the five things that Paul writes about in verses one through three were true of you. Even if you were saved at five years old in Sunday school, you were still dead in your trespasses and sins, and you were still by nature a child of wrath. Christians, listen, this is God's word. You gotta accept it. Do not buy into the lies of our culture. This whole humanistic thing where everybody's born good. Are you kidding? Do you got kids? <laughs> Come on. And so, just so you know how dark it is, dead in our trespasses and sins, following the course of this corrupt world, being led by the prince of the power of the air, living in the sinful passions of our flesh, and by nature children of wrath. And that's when we pick it up in verse four. And on the count of three, I want you guys to say the first two words in verse four. You ready for this? Shout it out. One, two, three, go. Let's try that again. One, two, three, go. Yes. One more time, louder. One, two, three, go. But God, how many of you are, are glad that in that dark picture, God showed up with his light? That's what you call grace. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. I think when Paul was penning this, he was standing up. He was probably dancing when he was writing this. And not only that, verse six, and he raised us up with Christ and seated us in him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And so why in the world would God show a bunch of sinners like us his mercy and his love by making us spiritually alive and seating us in heavenly places in Christ? Why? Why would God show his mercy and grace to you and to me? The answer is in verse seven. So that in the coming ages, stop right there, look at me. The coming ages, let that sink into your heart. Coming ages. It's not just this little life of if we're blessed 70 to 100 years. It's not it. Coming ages, as Dr. Heinsohn preached last week, there will be a rapture. We will go to the judgment seat of Christ. We will go to the marriage supper of the Lamb. We will come back with Jesus to this earth and we will rule and reign with the Lord for a thousand years on the earth. And if that's not good enough for you, in the coming ages, we're gonna see a new heaven and a new earth where only righteousness dwells. No more tears, no more death, no more crying. That's what's in store for you and for me in Christ Jesus. Now, why? Why in the world would God show sinners like us his mercy and love. The answer in verse seven is that in the coming ages, 
he might show the immeasurable riches of his what? Grace. Grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. And so God showed sinners like us his mercy and love so that in the ages to come, he might show us off as trophies of his grace. Thousands and thousands and millions and millions and billions and billions of years. So he can show off his kindness, his love, his grace. Now, some of you growing up, you received a trophy or two, right? You know, maybe you won the spelling bee in your school. Maybe you won the, the chess tournament. I don't know, the soccer state championship, whatever. They gave you a trophy. And you shined that baby up. You put it on your shelf. And that trophy spoke of your accomplishments. And you displayed it on your shelf. And I don't know, one, two, three years, it was there showing your accomplishments. And then probably it ended up in the trash. Well, guess what? God's got something a billion times better than that because God says that in the ages to come, all of us who've been saved by Jesus, all of us are gonna become trophies in and of ourselves of God's grace and we're gonna shine in heaven forever and ever for the glory of God. You're gonna be his trophy, shining in heaven, displaying his grace, displaying his mercy. You and me, I can't wait. We're gonna be shining like the stars for all eternity. And I'll look at you and say, wow. And you look at me and say, whatever you're gonna say, I don't know. I gotta be careful here. It is by grace. Now, of course, if you're with me, say amen here. Because some of you guys are already getting ready to send the email. Of course, we must be willing, please say the word willing, and respond to God's grace by placing our faith in Jesus. God does not force himself on unwilling people who go kicking and screaming into the kingdom of God. I don't believe that. So, you know, you don't have to send the email. Look at verse eight. He says, for by grace, you have been saved through what? Faith, okay? So you gotta put your faith in Jesus Christ. You say, well, what about works, pastor? Well, look at the rest of the verse. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works. Do you see it? At the end of verse nine, or, or, verse nine, I gotta point it out. Not a result of works. God's word right there. So everybody in this house, everybody watching on Facebook Live, everybody listening to the podcast later, hear, the, hear God's word. It's not of works so that no one may boast. You and I, as we're shining as God's trophies of grace forever and ever in heaven, we're not boasting about how good we are because we're saved by grace. We were children of wrath. We deserve to go to hell. But Jesus said, no, I love them and I'll pay for their sins. And he died on a cross and rose again. And when you turn to him in faith, He'll save you. Now, after you're saved, how do you respond to his grace? Well, that's in verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for, everybody say the word for, for, for good works, not by good works, for good works, 
which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So not only can you shine in heaven forever and ever as a trophy of God's grace, but now in this life, if you submit to the will of God and discover the, the works that he wants you to do, by the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit, you can shine in this life for God's grace. Is all this making sense to you guys? It's like Christianity 101, but it's the foundation. So turn back to Acts. As Paul shared his testimony, he shared about, number one, his life before Christ. Well, he was a sinner. And then two, he shared how he met Christ, and that was an encounter of grace. And then number three, he shared his life after Christ, which was characterized by obedience, not perfection. But that's the next fill-in on your card, obedience to God's will. And we see that now in verses 12 and following. And the rest of the chapter is going to go kind of fast, so stay with me here. Verse 12, Paul tells all these angry people in this crowd that he was blinded by the light and he had to be led by the hand into Damascus. Now verse 12, and one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who live there. Again, he's laying common ground here with his crowd. Came to me, verse 13, and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour, I received my sight and I saw him. Verse 14, and he said, the God of our fathers. Okay, please look at me. Think about that. The God, okay, Ananias, Ananias, you tell me, Jew or Gentile? See if you've been listening. Jew, right. So a Jew tells another Jew, Paul, the God of our father. Okay, so who's our? The Jews. The God of our, the Jews, fathers. Okay, who were the fathers? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Is it getting clear for you? Who is the one and only true God? The God of the Jews. All other so-called gods are not gods. All other so-called, you know, religions outside of Christianity that exalts the Jewish God as our God. Listen, all other religions that deny that God is the God of the Jews and his one and only son is named Jesus Christ, it's false. You gotta come to that place in your Christian life. You say it's not politically correct. I don't care. I'm not gonna stand before a focus group. I'm gonna stand before Jesus Christ one day and I gotta give an account of everything that I'm saying to you guys. And so God is the God of our fathers, Ananias tells Paul, and that's the God of the Jews. Look at verse 14, appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one. Okay, so there's Jesus. That's taken right out of Isaiah 53, 11, a messianic passage talking about Jesus. And so the God of our fathers, the God of the Jews, appointed you, Paul, to know his will, to see the righteous one, that's Jesus, and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone that you, of what you have seen and heard. Verse 16, Ananias tells Paul, and now, why do you wait? Rise and be, what's the word? Baptized. Baptized. See that commandment? And wash away your sins, calling on his name. Now, I've got to stop right there and clarify because some of you are thinking that this verse is saying that baptism can wash away your sins. No. 
No. Let me share with you a literal translation of verse 16 by Dr. Charles Ryrie. Many of you have his study Bible that you're looking at right now. You'll see this in the notes on the bottom. And so Dr. Ryrie, um, who is a scholar, extraordinaire with the Lord now in heaven, a scholar in Greek. I'm far from being a scholar in Greek. I think I told you before in Bible college many years ago, first semester of Greek, I got a D. Second semester, I got a C minus. So I don't know Greek. The only Greek I know is the guy who's got the sandwich shop down the street or whatever, right? <laughs> and so here's what Dr. Ryrie gives, a literal translation of Acts 22, 16. Okay, ready for this? Having arisen, eris participle, be baptized and wash away your sins, having called, aorist participle, on the name of the Lord. In other words, Dr. Ryrie is explaining, everybody look at me please, that just as um, Paul's arising or getting up preceded his baptism, so his calling on the name of the Lord in faith preceded the, preceded the washing away of his sins. In other words, it wasn't his baptism that washed away his sins. It was him calling on the name of the Lord in faith. Ladies and gentlemen, belief precedes baptism. First, Paul got saved on the road to Damascus, or shortly thereafter, right? He got saved by faith. And then, a few days later, he was baptized. You see this? So, so much of, of, of Christendom messes this up. Belief first, then baptism. Belief in Jesus, calling on the name of the Lord in faith, that's what washes away your sins. And then we follow the Lord in obedience, his command to be baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And by the way, we had the joy of baptizing 12 people just three days ago at our first Thursday service, and we should thank God for that. Awesome thing. Verse 17, Paul continues to address this crowd. He says, when I returned to Jerusalem, I was praying in the temple and I fell into a trance and I saw him, Jesus, saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they won't accept your testimony about me. And I said, well, Lord, now Paul's only been saved now for about three years and he's arguing with the Lord, okay? And can I just encourage you? That's not a good idea, okay? Hey, Lord, verse 19, they themselves know that it, in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. Please, let me go to the Jews, is what Paul's saying here. In verse 21, the Lord's having none of it. And he said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the who? The Gentiles, all right? And so once again, three parts of his testimony, before Christ center, he met Christ in counter of grace, but now his life after Christ, obedience to God's will, which I really wanna give this to you guys as clear as I can, because this is very, very practical. Obedience to God's will, which occurs one step at a time. Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus did not give Paul the whole detailed plan of what his life would look like. All he said, Lord, what should I do? And basically Jesus said, get up and go to Damascus. Okay, so that was his next step. 
The Lord Jesus on the road to Damascus just gave him the next step, which leads you to your next point. If you're filling in the blank here, the will of God is revealed in the context of a relationship with God step by step. How come I'm confused? How come I don't know what to do? How come, you know, it seems like God is silent? You got a relationship with him? That's the question. Now again, step by step. On the road to Damascus, Jesus did not say, well, Paul, first, th first thing I want you to do is go to Damascus, and then I want you to go uh, out into Arabia for three years, because you got a lot to learn, kid. And then I want you to go to Jerusalem. And they're going to hate you there, so you're going to have to flee up to Tarsus, your hometown. And, you know, you're going to be there for a long time. But don't get discouraged. I'm going to send Barnabas. He's going to find you, and he's going to take you to Antioch of Syria, and you're going to co-pastor a church there uh, with him. And then that church is going to send you out on not one, not two, but three missionary journeys. And you need to know, Paul, also, that you're going to suffer a lot. Um, five times you're going to receive 39 slashes from the Jews. Three times you're going to be beaten with rods. One time they're going to stone you and leave you, leave you for dead. Three times you're going to be shipwrecked. You know, you're going to be uh, subject to hunger and thirst. You're going to be exposed to cold weather. And, um, you know, have fun. And I'll see you in about two decades, Paul. <laughs> Is that what Jesus said to Paul on the road to Damascus? No, he said, get up and go to Damascus. And that was the next step. God's will is revealed in the context of a relationship with God step by step. You remember this illustration? The church right now, the worship center, let's say it's completely dark, and I'm you. God gives you a flashlight, turns it on, can't see anything else. All you can see is the next step. And so you're building a relationship with the Lord. He saved you by his grace. You're responding to his grace by praying and reading the Bible and walking with God. There's your next step. And you, oh, it doesn't make sense, but I know God told me to do this. Boom, you take the next step. And wow, God showed up. Where God guides, he really does provide. And the next thing you know, the light comes back on. Poof, and there's the next step. And you say, well, if God showed up before, I think he can show up again. Oh, okay, I'll take this step. Boom. You see, relationship with the Lord, your faith's getting stronger. The reason God didn't share with Paul the whole story of what his will was for Paul's life is because Paul's faith wasn't strong enough when he first got saved. He had to get stronger, step by step. I know I'm preaching to somebody this, this afternoon. Step by step. And so here's what God very rarely, if ever, does. He doesn't do this for your life. Hey, look at all of it. Why? Because you drop the flashlight and run out the back door. <laughs> God's will revealed in the context, everybody say the word relationship, relationship with God, step by step. But you got to develop that relationship with the Lord. You're the one who's got to get up at 530 tomorrow and open your Bible. And you're the one who's got to take the next step. So we're going to fly through the rest of this chapter, but I need, I need you to know um, that Paul shared his testimony with these people, and he's calling you and I to share our testimony as well. Hey, would you guys let me go five minutes over? Yes or no? Yes. What are you going to say, right? Yes. Hey, 
you know, here's the thing. All of us, we can sit down and watch a movie for two hours, and we're just like, and then we come to church, and we're like, you better finish up, Pastor. <laughs> hey, we need a heart for God's word, okay? Just give me five minutes, I'll be done. Paul shared his testimony. God wants you to share your testimony. So what's a good outline of a testimony? Right here. Part one, your life before Christ, fill in the blank, you and I, sinners. Part two, how did you meet Jesus? Encounter of grace. Part three, what's your life look like after meeting Jesus? Well, it's not perfection, I know that. <laughs> not in my life at least, but it is obedience by the power and grace of God. Obedience. Now, what I love about a personal testimony is that it's easy to remember, it flows in conversation, and it's real because it happened to you. It's easy to remember this May, so we're now uh, March, right? April, May. So in two months, I'll be celebrating 36 years of knowing and walking with Jesus by God's grace. It's a beautiful thing. And here's what I know. I know that I remember the details of that day so clearly because it happened to me. And I know you got a story too. And so, hey, sharing your personal testimony with other people, it's easy to remember, right? And then secondly, it flows in conversation. This is not you preaching at people. This is not you, you know, sharing a one-sided download of a memorized speech on somebody. This is a give and take flowing in conversation. And then the third thing is um, that it's real because it, it happened to you. You guys raise your hands if this is true. How many of you guys have peace and joy in your heart now that you've met Jesus? Can I see your hand? Right? Who can argue against all those hands? People can argue minor doctrine, but they can't argue about your story. So share your testimony. Pray for open doors this week, this month, this year. And here's what I know. Life's difficulties brings open doors. I mean, right? Storms are universal. You're either in a storm right now, you're either leaving a storm in your life, or you're about to go into a storm, right? Did you know storms are not just for Christians? It's for everybody out there. And so people are having a difficult time. Well, there's your door. As they're sharing with you at work or neighbors or friends or whatever, their difficult time, you could say, well, you know what? Man, I've, I've been some, through some difficult times too, and Jesus helped me through. Say his name. Not right now, I'm just saying. <laughs> as you're sharing with people, just say his name. Listen, there's power in the name. People at work, they could talk about Buddhism and crystals and everything under the sun, but you say the name Jesus, and for some people, the hair is just like, right? Because there's power in that name. And just say, hey, Jesus, help me through and share it before how you met Jesus and after. Now, some people are going to listen to you. Some aren't. It's okay. You're just called to share the truth in love. You're not called to change minds. So... Uh, Apollos, uh, Paul planted, Apollos watered. God's the one who gives the increase. But I want to encourage you. I want to challenge you. Look for those open doors. Paul spoke the truth in love and they rejected him. 
He said the word Gentiles in verse 21, and the Jewish crowd came unglued. And so we're just going to read to the end of the chapter, and I'll, I'll close in prayer. And so up to this word, verse 22, the word Gentiles, they listened to him, and then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, he should not be allowed to live. Because if Paul was making Gentiles into Jewish proselytes, they would have loved him, but he's calling people to follow Jesus, the Jewish Messiah. They don't agree with that. Verse 23, and as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust in the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, is it lawful for you to flog a man who's a Roman citizen and uncondemned? And so, of course, it was unlawful to bind an uh, uncondemned Roman citizen, much less whip him. In verse 26, when the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, what are you about to do? This man's a Roman citizen. So the tribune came to him and said to Paul, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, yeah. In verse 28, the tribune answered, well, I bought this citizenship or my citizenship for a large sum. In other words, he bribed somebody. But Paul said, I'm a citizen by birth. And that, that made them all afraid because verse 29 says, so those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately and the tribune was also afraid. He knows he could lose his position if he did anything to an uncondemned Roman citizen. And so um, verse 30, Claudius knows he's got to get to the bottom of this situation so on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet. And he brought Paul down and set him before them. So the next day, Claudius gets on the phone. He calls the high priest down the street. Ananias says, hey, bring the Sanhedrin, the mighty Sanhedrin comes in the room. They look, there's Paul. And Paul is about to address these mighty Jewish men. What's he going to say? That's going to be next week as we gather together. And so God bless you guys. Thanks for your patience all the way through the message. But let me say this. If you're here today and you need prayer for anything going on in your life, we're not, we're not in a hurry. The staff and ministry partners, we're not in a hurry. We want to be available for you. And so if you need prayer... Right after I close in prayer, you can come up. There'll be prayer partners on either side, and they would love to confidentially agree with you in the name of Jesus for whatever you're going through in your, in your life. Most important of all, if you're here today and you've, I know I'm talking to somebody here, and you've never given your life to Jesus, please don't get in your car and drive away. Because if you've never given your life to Jesus, if you've never trusted Christ, um, you're, you're driving away in your sins. And God forbid, if you were to take a last breath this week, you would die in your sins. But God so loved the world, right? He loves you. And so here's what you do. After closing prayer, just come, come right here. And I'll be here and Pastor Will and some others. And uh, we would love to take five minutes and share with you how you can know Jesus Christ. So, so important. 
but you, you, you gotta come. You know, we're not forcing anything on anybody, but it's your decision. And I hope you'll be willing to do that.